Up and at him, E-Town. Don't forget, because it is so true. Anything is possible, and make sure to put your best foot forward. We, we're, we're certainly all in this together. It's a great day to be a wild kid. Hi, I'm Nora Miller, and welcome to Kit Chat. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Zachary Bahar. How are you doing today, Zachary? I'm doing well. It's been a tough week, though, especially with Ruth Bader Ginsburg passing away in these last few days, and with a Rosh Hashanah and other high holidays that just do not feel holy. 100%. Um, my heart just goes out to her entire family and the people she worked with. She was a truly inspirational person. Yeah, she was an American hero in all of the right ways, and the kind of hero we need. Without fail, she was fighting for justice, equality, and unity within our country. There are so many individuals who admired her and will follow in her footsteps. And that's a perfect segue to our first guest and recent graduate of ETHS, Kayla Henning, an organizer from Evanston Fight for Black Lives. She, among so many others in that organization, are true change makers within Evanston. Um, yeah, thank you so much, by the way, for coming on um, and talking to us. I'm excited. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My name's Kayla. Um, I graduated from Evanston just last May. Um, I'm at American now. Um, I play basketball. And yeah, I feel like those are all the fun fun parts of me. Evanston Fight for Black Lives is an organization that was founded by some other Evanston alums who had graduated two years prior, a year prior, and they wanted to get together and hold and, and hold a rally and a march um, in the wake of the death of George Floyd and, well, the murder of George Floyd. They did that. Uh, it was huge. They organized it in about 48 hours. There were 5,000 people who showed up and showed out. From there, they felt that they weren't satisfied and that they wanted to continue doing the work. Um, and Evans, they did it on a defunding to abolition platform. That's really what they've been working on. I got involved later. Well, I spoke at the first march and rally. Um, I knew some of the organizers from my work with SOAR um, at the school. After that, I got involved as an organizer in August, in the beginning of August. My work with them has been kind of continuing the work um, the, or the foundation that they've already kind of started on the defunding platform. We put together a defunding packet that's uh, about, I think, 27 pages. Um, we've done back to, a back-to-school drive um, for students in Evanston where we gave out about 250 bags. We held a march in the, in the wake of um, the Jacob Blake situation. We raised about $15,000 with the help of the community uh, for his family. And that kind of hits the main points of what I've done and what the organization is about. Could I ask, would you be willing to like explain more about some of the involvement you've had with the Blake family and like how you got into contact with them following uh, Jacob Blake's shooting? Yeah, um, I won't get into like specific relatives just for their safety and um, their protection, but um, just because, you know, Jacob Blake is from Evanston and his family has ties to Evanston, there were a few of us who um, had contacts with his family. So we were able to reach out to them, kind of say, you know, what do you need? Um, they told us basically that they needed um, the financial support to keep everybody in his vicinity who, you know, who's taking care of him while they're not working, whatever, so that they can um, help him recover. 
And so that's what we projected to the Evanston community. And um, Evanston was very receptive of that message. We had just over 575 donations. So this wasn't like major organizations giving $5,000. This was like really people giving what they have. And I guess I know your, your organization met with Jacob Blake's father. You want to walk us through kind of the process of meeting him and then I know you you all talked to him so all of that. For sure. It was it was brief. We told him that we had raised the money and he basically said, you know, wherever well I'll come to meet you whenever. So we met in Evanston. Um y'all saw the picture like right where the Barnes and Noble is. And <laughs> he he basically was saying thank you and thank you to the community and that um, he, he felt really loved and that he loved us. And so it was definitely a moment full of emotion um, and beauty and kind of a storm. But um, yeah, that was definitely a moment that I believe I'll remember for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And yeah, like that picture did just look like, I mean, there was just clearly so much emotion around that. Um, even just like seeing it online, it's it was clear that that was there and then talking to other people who were involved in it also. For sure, for sure. Can I ask like how has, like obviously you said that there were uh, a bit more than 500 people who were donating um, to help the Blake family. And how do you feel like the Evanston community has like contributed to this effort overall? Like, do you think that activism like is still at the core of Evanston? Like, people say it is I mean I think that's a tricky question because I don't want to judge individuals by like a community um so I think there are people in Evanston for sure who you know like activism is at their core and whichever avenue that may be like they don't have to be involved with necessarily like an activist organization um but as a whole city it's been very challenging for the folks who were organizers before me it's continued to be very challenging. And like, this is talking to folks who have the power um, about these platforms. And so no is my answer to the whole question because of how challenging it's been, you know, how, how much adversity we've been faced with. You kind of want to go deeper. Can you tell us about some of the struggles y'all have faced with, you know, the city of Evanston? First, we put together a 27-page, like I said, 27-page defunding packet. We sent it to all the aldermen. One alderman reached back out to us about it because they were frustrated kind of about how we stated their stance in it. But um, they have not, like, come and met us with, like, let's talk about this. Like, let's, let's go through this together. Um, the, we go to, uh, often we go to the police department and the conversation stops when you say defund the police and it kind of doesn't move past there often with certain officers. This is not for every officer necessarily. Um, and I think and then, and then the question is always, well, what's your plan? And we'll say, well, it's actually in our link tree. Like, <laughs> the document is in our link tree. And they'll be like, all right, then we'll come back out next week. And the same question will be posed. Well, what's your plan? Well, we told you the document, document was in our link tree. And, and it's never read because, I, I think, because people just don't want to face that, like, 
that there is something here that we can explore that will be different and it'll be uncomfortable, but it's something that we, we, we should take time to explore. And so I think that's been the most difficult. Obviously the mayor has not come out to even look at into defunding at this point. So that is a separate thing in itself, but yeah, that's been, that's been the main points. And certainly the mayor, I think has gotten a lot of flack from a lot of people over this past summer for his refusal to acknowledge anything. For sure. And not even like a, yes, I will defund, but like, nah, we're not doing that right now. Like the, the, <laughs> the answer being no is kind of like crazy to me, but. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess in terms of the Jacob Blake shooting, obviously all of the other events that happened this summer how did it feel organizing for Jacob Blake versus um organizing in the past hmm. I mean it definitely makes something like tangible like obviously I, I think just me as a human I like you know like empathy kind of uh get motivated by like another human being like the motivator there and so that made it like the goals not even more clear but more tangible and so I think just folks were motivated to like come out and do this with with great purpose even when it's not specifically for Jacob Blake per se it's for somebody like Jacob Blake or the hundreds of millions of Jacob Blakes there are who might not get shot might not might not get killed but will be traumatized for the rest of their lives in in some way due to policing and well white supremacy as a whole and so i think keeping that in mind is important but having that connection with somebody who's so like close almost is is definitely something that's been different. It's just like how many degrees of separation apart are you? And I guess even certainly like as myself as a white person, like Jacob Blake is from Evanston. Like I don't know if it hit me different than um, any of the other shootings or killings. But it's just like, I know people who know him. Like it, it's For closer. Sure. Mm-hmm. It is closer. For sure. Do you think that like people who aren't in the black community who are white or who are, you know, white passing and, or just not black, do you think that people understand that there are like so many more things than just what gets on TV? Or do you think that's like an inconvenience truth that people just ignore? Um, both. Yeah, both. Um, I think it is an inconvenience and a truth that people ignore. And I think that there are folks who are starting to understand that there are like just people every day that they engage with who are um, kind of in the same, well, just have been traumatized, right? And hmm, I, I don't know if they understand it. I don't know if I understand it, but I do understand that it's not working and that it's it's dangerous and and it's, it's deadly. Um, and I think the more folks who start to understand that, but then again, we can't wait at the same time, you know, like, because it's so 
it's an issue that's so like now, like needs to happen now, it's hard because you got to find the balance of like, let's get these people on board. And like, we don't have time to wait for these people to get on board. And then, I mean, on top of that, I think you have to balance like who's performing for the Evanston community and then who like goes back home and says, like, oh, I don't really care. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah. Like, kind of, like uh, back to what you were saying right before that, like, I do think that there is a difference between like knowledge and being willing to take action and understanding. And I know I'll never understand, but I can know that this is happening and say I need to take action. For maybe sure. That's where we need to get people. Yeah, exactly. I, I know like folks who have been to SOAR conferences and um, any engagements with SOAR, like use the compass a lot. Um, and I've been thinking about the compass on like where we need to be. And it needs to just be like thinking, I think it needs to be believing, not in the sense that we talk about it, um, in terms of like, I believe it in my heart because I feel it necessarily, but believing just because folks said it, like mm-hmm. black folks said it. And then like straight from believing, we jump to acting. Like it can't, we, so we can't take this long process, you know? Sometimes yeah. it's gotta be like, I gotta just believe and act, you know? Yeah, and for people who don't, aren't familiar with the compass, like the, it's the, the courageous conversations compass. Um, the source space is super big on, um, but it has four corners and each has an action or like a way of reacting receiving, to yeah, receiving um, information. And the, the four the quadrants are thinking, believing, acting. Yeah, thinking, believing, acting, feeling. So, and I feel like for me, I mean, it always fluctuates where I am with that. Because I yeah. think right with the, when in the beginning of this, I was super just feeling everything and I couldn't, I think because it was such a strong emotion, like I was feeling such strong emotions, I couldn't act on anything. I just had to like sit back and say, like, whoa, like what's going on in the world? For sure. And... I think the biggest part you're talking about specifically like non-black folks. And I think the biggest part is that black folks are feeling so often that it's hard to act. And so for folks who are not feeling at the moment and maybe feeling in the, the ways of empathy, but not feeling like, you know, directly, like you got to take over the acting portion uh, for the folks who can't. And like as a non, as a white person, that is like what I certainly try to do, be it through having conversations with relatives and with friends who have who have beliefs that are pressing others or, or going to rallies and going to protests. And I know it's not enough and I know it's, you know, it, I would say like, you know, I don't know if anything's ever enough because it's been institutionalized yeah. for so long. But for sure. Certainly if you mobilize enough individuals to that and have enough people who are white who have privilege speaking hopefully something comes to it for sure i do want to be be cognizant that we you know we did talk about like what white folks should do a lot and it's fair but definitely like um i think that black folks have been doing i've been thinking a lot about like what it took for black folks to survive 
And a lot of times, like we talk about, like the revolution is coming, like this is the revolution. But like in order to survive, there had to be like every every black person had to be revolutionary. Like survival is revolutionary. And so I think we should just, you know, make sure that we're paying tribute to like the fact that black folks have been surviving and have been revolutionary all this time. And um, now we need to like center that and and push more for sure because we can't do it alone but yeah yeah i think um yeah i think sometimes at least for me i tend to notice a little bit more what people are doing wrong and versus what i do i don't know every day exactly and so that can be in itself kind of hurtful against yourself so exactly exactly and it's the minute things you know like small things that have been like vital to black survival since since the beginning thank you so much for coming on thank you for having me for sure and actually if you want to take a second to plug anything yeah yeah social media um okay yes oh now this is a test (laughs) mix up the all right so on instagram it is evanston for black lives and on facebook it is evanston fight for black lives and we don't have any events that are planned at the moment but that's kind of the best way to keep up with what we've got going on um so come out please come out donate and yeah all of that good stuff and we'll link both of the both the facebook and the instagram in the show notes so for sure check them out thank you mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much kayla thank you for having me what a wonderful guest kayla always leaves me thinking for all of our listeners make sure to check out more perspectives about the jacob blake shooting in our september issue of the evanstonian i'm not sure if you know this but nora and i are recording this inaugural episode of kit chat on zoom because everything happens on zoom <laughs> yeah although it is the safest option the continue our education, e-learning has certainly been an adjustment for countless students. It definitely has. And our next guest is the Evanstonian's in-depth editor, Lauren Dane, here to talk about the research that in-depth has been conducting with regards to the issue of e-learning. Hi, Lauren. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Of course. It would be great if you could give us a bit of an introduction for yourself and what you're going to be talking about so that we can get right to it. Yeah, so uh, hi, I'm Lauren. I use she, her pronouns, and I am the in-depth editor for this year, the 2020-21 school year. I've been writing on in-depth since the beginning of my freshman year, so it's basically my whole high school experience is in-depth. Um, so it's really great to be like working on it for so long. And we'll be talking about our most recent issue that's coming out soon, where we're talking about e-learning and kind of like student and staff experiences of e-learning. So it's been really interesting gathering that information. Yeah, what have you found as InDepth has been doing this research? Like what are the biggest findings or takeaways that you have just as like a broad sweep? Yeah, so I think that it is mainly about how students are feeling and how they've kind of approached 
e-learning so far we've been in school for just over a month so especially the difference between how students felt at the beginning of the school year to kind of how they feel a month into it is interesting at the beginning of the school year and like the first couple of days everyone was like oh we're so exhausted and you almost feel like sick after being on zooms for so long and it was really like just a negative outlook on everything and now everyone still has that kind of like perspective of it but it is much more like, oh, I found a routine that works for me. And we've created a survey that has actually been really successful Like while we are remote. So that was really great where students kind of shared that while it was really challenging in the beginning and it's still challenging, it's become much easier. So it can be sustainable for a while. And in terms of the research, um, do you have like a number for us of how many people answered the survey? 466 that people is... have taken the survey which is really great. That's a large number of responses, even like compared to other surveys we've done in the past, like during school. Yeah, because that would be and like 15% of the population, give or take. So yeah. yeah. And it's like, how has like the research process been for the for this spread? Like who have you been reaching out to? Obviously students, um, mm -hmm. like who else have you been talking to? And then like, what have you been hearing from them? Yeah, so like you said, we've been reaching out to a lot of students and that's what the survey reflects. But we've been also reaching out to students in administration and especially I think learning about teachers experiences with it because they had to do a lot of the planning entering e-learning. And I think that especially students uh, might have not appreciated might be the right word, how much like time and efforts teachers have been putting into like the curriculum where a lot of the responses from teachers or department chairs have been that they've been staying up all night working on changing the curriculum and grading over the summer. And the person who runs like the Chrome Zone and the Student Support Center put together like all of these videos and like Chrome classes for teachers to learn about how to use like Zoom and Google Meet because it is like new for everyone. It wasn't just new for students. So we've been talking to teachers kind of about like the learning curve of having to like change their entire class environment, right? Because yeah, I mean, yeah. my mom's a teacher and um, I've just watched her kind of like do all of this stuff online and, you know, go on Zoom every day. Um, I think it's amazing that ETHS was able to do that with such a high volume of kids. Do you have any kind of an overall vantage point of how the teachers are feeling? Yeah, so I think that for the majority of the teachers that we talked to, and just like the sample of the teachers we talked to, I think it's around like five or so. Uh, I think that the general idea is that they're trying to have a positive outlook, an optimistic outlook on how the school year is going, going to unfold. And I think that's specifically for the students. Like they want to kind of keep the students' energy up and focus up. But uh, I think that like the teachers' well-being is also like coming to play. Like this is difficult for them too. And I think that some of the teachers have expressed that when we've talked to them is that they've had to do like a lot of extra work and that can be tough. Like it's, they already have like a normal job of teaching and they've had to do all this extra work on top of that. So I definitely think teachers are as frustrated as students, right? And are experiencing a lot of the similar uh, negative effects of e-learning as students are, but are trying to keep a positive view of things. Yeah, and as I've like been talking to people too, and especially just mm -hmm. teachers even who I've had in like past years, it's like a lot of them are saying like, it's a lot and it's more than I can handle. And there's like less and less division between my personal and working life. Which- Yeah, like, I feel like the lines, 
I feel like the lines get a little blurred with that. Definitely. Yeah. And like even in like my own house, like my dad who like normally goes to an office, like is working at home and it's like you're working till midnight and that's now normal because there's no division between personal and professional. Mm -hmm. And then you talked about, um, you know, teachers trying to bring up the energy of students. Have you heard anything from either your interviews or the um, survey of how students are combating that like Zoom fatigue? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that the dual like the teachers first. So I think that with the teachers, they are um, really trying to figure out ways to not talk at students so much. I've a lot of the teachers that I talked to were saying that they like almost feel bad how much they're just like lecturing to students, and they can almost see like with the students like keep their screens on, right? How their like attention is fading away over the seventy minutes, and I think that that is like the main thing that teachers are struggling with. Uh, and one of the teachers I talked to was saying that when students go on their phones, like in school, you really shouldn't do that when you're in class and just like go on your phone openly in class. But people are doing that over Zoom, and it seems so crazy because it's still class, right? But the teacher can't do anything about it. Are they going to call you out over Zoom, right? Like it yeah. just seems very, very different. Um, and one of the teachers was like, I really can't do anything to make sure that students being focused and engaged sounds very different from in the classroom. And I think that students are trying to find ways to cope with being in classes for 70 minutes and having to be Zooms on day. So is that like being on their phones and communicating and talking to other like friends and classmates? Because if that's helping them be energized throughout the day, then that's good, right? But then there's the other idea that like, our students actually participating and paying attention. So I think it's really like give and take of like, what is important right now? Is it like a class community and students talking to each other and still like having a community or is it that they're paying attention for the full 70 minutes of class content? Yeah, and I think like finding that balance of where you can have a community, especially when half of the people in most of the classes have cameras off at all times. Mm -hmm. And like, I understand why that's allowed, but like, it still is like, you can't build the community this way. And I think like finding that balance between like having community and having engagements is really, really difficult. Like I'll admit I've beaten multiple Tetris high scores this week because like, it is so easy to get distracted and yeah. Yeah, I think in our survey, people were saying that like, their pets are both distracting them and comforting them, which I 100% agree with. But it's, yeah, and the, yeah, it's a lot of like, there's so many more distractions in your like house than there is in school. And that's on purpose. Like school is kind of like, I want to say bland inside, but it's yeah. like that for a purpose to keep students like focused on the class. And that's different when you're in your house, all of these distractions around you. Yeah, or it's like you have like controlled distractions at school. Yeah. Like you can get distracted, but get distracted staring at a poster on the wall that really like might turn your brain on versus get distracted by, oh, there's food upstairs. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely agree. And can I like ask like, how do you feel like from your own perspective? Like how have you been navigating e-learning? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I would say that I like to think of myself always as a organized person. So I think that approach to e-learning was a very like, we're going to organize my life and organize everything about it. <laughs> so I still use a, I'm very like also the struggle with me, I, the like biggest struggle with the actual like class environment and content that we're learning is that I'm a pen and paper person all the way. I love mm, yeah. having like physical copies of things. So I still use a physical like planner and write down all of my assignments every day. And that like keeps me focused and on task and definitely with school that's like kept me going and organized and make sure I turn everything in on time. But I feel like the majority of the people that we've heard from that it's a struggle and it's a lot of like Zoom fatigue. I'm tired after school, especially like the first week. I think I took a nap after school every single day. And I did that today. Yeah. And then like extracurriculars and sports are starting up, right? Which is something that I don't know if people were expecting where it's going to happen or they were really just unsure about their sport, but everybody's then being thrown into extra things after school and you're really tired. So things that used to just not matter, you just go to sports after school. Like I do cross country. I just go to cross country after school. It's, I have a different mentality when approaching all of those things. And I think it's a real like testament to like, first of all, no one was prepared for this in terms of like technology. And um, I think we had a little bit of preparation, you know, at the end of last school year. Um, but in terms of even the Chromebooks, I think, you know, what if I always think about like the what ifs of like, what if your internet just goes down or like, what if I don't really, I mean, there are a lot of mishaps that can go on in terms yeah. of technology that I think um are definitely not forced we're not foreseen before this and i think like the majority of teachers certainly of my teachers and you can speak to yours lauren or to anyone else who you've talked to like i think the majority of teachers are very understanding of that stuff and they have to be because it also happens to them um like to an extent like i was i was reading some article i don't remember what it was but someone was saying like you know, I used to think climate change was the only thing that united all of humanity. And I didn't want another thing, but there is now another thing. Like, and that's, yeah, it, it's there. And we're all in it together as cheesy and as not true as that is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. and I think with the technology, especially, personally, I've had my internet break down yeah. maybe every day. <laughs> um, but I was talking to the student tech support coordinator mm -hmm. and she was telling me about the hotspots and how the high school actually received a grant over the summer to purchase more hotspots and provide them to families who are in need of them but there's like so many different factors and are like you were saying that goes into chromebooks and internet connection and all of these things that if a family is asking for a hotspot that means that they don't have any internet connection and there's the idea that maybe one student is asking for the hotspot, but maybe they have siblings who are in like middle school or elementary school who are also going to be using that hotspot. Now their parents who aren't used to being at home are now also going to be at home using that hotspot during the day. And it's just one hotspot that is now carrying four more people's bandwidth and that can't be sustainable for a long period of time. And then you have students who came or who started the learning with broken Chromebooks and you're remote and how are they gonna fix those Chromebooks? And it's just all of these different factors of like we're not used to being dependent on technology, but now we are. And then how do we deal with that? 
And I think you started to touch on this, but even beside the technology piece, everyone has a different home life. Yeah. And like, that is something that like students can't control, but like really sets a different bar for different people, depending how they, how, what conditions they're in, what socioeconomic class, all that stuff. And like, that's what again, we can, like this intersection of, of all the issues that we always talk about in society. Like the pandemic has really brought them all to a head in a way. Yeah, like the accessibility of school is so different than what it used to be. And like accessibility within education has always been a major issue. But now we're talking about it with technology, which is something that has always been relevant with like access to technology within school. But when it is the like number one thing that you need to have to be able to attend class and be educated, that's a completely different story. And I think it kind of definitely circles back to what we were saying earlier about kind of what the goal is for e-learning. Um, you know, I think this conversation us talking made me think that, you know, it kind of has to be just being able to connect or have some sort of routine every day instead of learning all of the content and making sure that, you know, you're getting whatever um, tested, graded in that way. Um, yeah. And I think especially now that gradient has changed along with the curriculum, like every teacher almost has their own grading standard. And that can be really like strange and difficult for students to like be on top of because if the te if teachers are in charge of creating their own grading system, then it's gonna be different for each class. And I feel like that's gonna become a struggle for students down the line. Absolutely, and like even like I was thinking I was talking to a friend about like how their math teacher was doing grading earlier today. Like my friend's math teacher is like giving them a test and they're saying, okay, turn this in whenever you have time today. Um, whereas like my math teacher is saying, here's a quiz, you have 10 minutes, finish it or don't. I don't care if your internet goes out too bad. Like even there you come to like, how do you, like those aren't equitable. If your internet goes out, if you have all these issues, yeah, it just puts people in very difficult places. And I don't, like, I have no better solution for a lot of them, but the problems <laughs> exist. I guess, like, I think, like, we've kind of addressed a good amount of them. But, like, what do you think, like, some of the biggest challenges are, like, that will, like, exist as, like, testaments to where we're at at the moment? Mm -hmm. Like, as, yeah. Yeah, so I think that the there are so many like big challenges, right, in 2020, that it's really hard to think of them all, like, as a whole. Like, when you look back on the year, you're gonna be like, this is a year, like, over the summer was such a, like, big moment in activism, right? And now we're entering the election, and that's a part of that large movement, right? But it's kind of its own separate, like, entity and thing. So, and then maybe learning, which I think is even like separate from the coronavirus. So it's all of these major topics that are all happening together. And I think that um, especially how people are handling it is like everyone has their own experiences with what's going on, but especially as a whole, I feel like our, like the, our ETHS community and Evanson community is handling it like fairly well, right? Well, we all might have differences in how we each approach like certain topics or voice our opinions or not voice our opinions. I think that the idea that Evanson is 
um, very focused on like public safety and being engaged in the upcoming election and um, being like active in the Black Lives Matter movement is all very important. And I think as a city, we've seen that over the last year, but student involvement and just like community involvement in general has been really good. Yeah. And I don't know. It. No, it does. It does. And like even for you learning, like Evanston, obviously we are able to give everyone a Chromebook. We're able to give everyone hotspots. A lot of places can't. And a lot of places have very different experiences with what e-learning looks like as compared to what we do. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's strange to think about how others like schools are handling it and like our surrounding community. And we're talking about that in depth and in, in depth. We're talking about like Nutrier and Loyola and other schools around us who also have like the one-to-one programs with technology but schools that like don't have access to technologies, the technology like the schools around us and ETHS does are definitely struggling more than we are. So I think that we need to appreciate that we do have like that privilege in our community and that, yeah, others do not. Yeah, I think that was the stuff we wanted to talk about. Anything else you want to say or anything you want to plug at the end? <laughs> um, not really, because we have all of our survey now that I think that was the biggest thing that InDepth was working on over the past couple of weeks has been our survey, but we reached our goal for that. So it's good. yeah, and check out the InDepth e-learning piece. That'd also be good to read. It's on Evanstonian.net and we'll link it in the show notes. It's a good piece that really does try to address a lot of these issues mm-hmm. in the best way that it can be done. As we were talking about with Lauren, in e-learning has been a difficult experience for a lot of students, and there's definitely a gap between it and the ETHS community that we know and love. If you or anyone you know is struggling with mental health this year as a result of e-learning or anything else, please, please, please reach out to an ETHS social worker. They're here to help out in any way that they can. What a great resource our staff is for all of our students. Even though everything is happening online, there are still a lot of ways to get involved in communities and spaces doing great work. To learn more and join, visit the ETHS Virtual Activity Fair Flipgrid. Also, be sure to check out a in-person food drive for Connections for the Homeless and Soup at Six on September 27th. ETHS Community Service Club will be hosting the event in the ETHS parking lot one from two to 4 p.m. Be sure to bring your canned food items. Especially in times like this, we need great news like that. So thank you for sharing, Nora. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for listening to our first episode of the KitChat podcast. Thanks to Kayla Henning, Lauren Dane, and our producer, John Phillips. In addition, we want to thank Oliver Leopold and the ETHS Marching Band for recording our introduction, and Dr. Kamasi Hill and CJ Singletary for creating our outro music. Yes, thank you all so much. We'll talk to you all soon. Have a wonderful day.